So we are a community of disciples, each at different places in our journey. Community of disciples being formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of the world. But that doesn't mean that we're immune from missing big. And last week we began a new series for the fall. I've titled it The Great Invitation. We're going to look at John 13 through 17. It's called The Upper Room Discourse uh, to get a sense from Jesus what it is that he's inviting us into, what this God life is. Uh, So last week we talked about some of these ideas of what is eternal life when Jesus invites us to eternal life and what what does it mean to know God Uh, Not just brains on a stick academically. What does it mean to know God in intimacy? We talked about intimacy last week. And uh, all throughout the series, I'm going to use this uh, next graphic more and more, but again, the call to cultivate intimacy with God, with others, for others. Um, But tonight, as we circle back to to John 13, so we're looking at this section, John 13 through 17, we kind of started at the end of it last week in John 17. Now we're going to go back to John 13 tonight. As we start to make our way through this passage and through this section, um, I want to be very clear and I want to name the big miss. uh, Lest we walk into the big miss ourselves. Uh, when I say big miss, what do I mean? Have you ever watched sports and seen the big miss before? Now, you don't even have to be a diehard sports fan. Like You may not even get the finer points of the game or all the rules or all the nuance of the activity. But there are sometimes even the uneducated, uninitiated fan can watch a game and go like, oh, dang, that was bad. Right? That, was, that was a miss. That was a big miss. And sports history is full of them. Humor me for 30 seconds. 1993 college basketball championship game. University of Michigan versus University of North Carolina. There was 20 seconds left. Michigan was down by two. A player named Chris Weber, he got the rebound off a missed free throw, and he called timeout. Except the problem was his team didn't have any timeouts left. That's called a big miss. And it essentially ended the game for them. October 26, 1986, Game 6 of the World Series, Boston Red Sox versus the New York Mets. I remember this because I was a kid. I, I stayed up late to watch the end of the game. It was the 10th inning. Baseball games usually go nine innings, so it was in the 10th inning. Tie game, runner on third, about to come home and score the winning run, and the Mets hit a routine ground ball, and Bill Buckner came up to field the ball on first base, and the ball went through his legs into the outfield, and the other team won. Like, you don't have to know much about baseball to know when the ball goes through your legs, that's bad. Or one that still makes me twitch as a Chicago Bears fan, January 6th, 2019. It was the Bears-Eagles NFC wildcard playoff game. Ten seconds left, Bears down by one point. They line up to kick a 43-yard field goal that was very makeable, and the Bears kicker, Cody Parkey, kicks the ball, and it bounces off the goalpost once, twice, 
and falls out. That game has been called the double doink. <laughs> doink, doink, and out. And again, you don't have to be a big football fan to realize it's not good when you hit that upright. It's supposed to go through the upright. Big mess. Big misses aren't only confined to sports, though. Maybe you've experienced a big miss yourself. Big misses happen in marriage. Big misses happen in parenting. They happen in relationships and friendships. Big misses happen in work. Big misses happen in faith. Big misses happen in churches. So again, we have this series and we're talking about the great invitation and we can get into some of the details about being a disciple of Jesus and what does it mean to know God and how to have intimacy with God. And here's the big miss that I want to point out tonight. The big miss is to get Jesus wrong. Because again, even in church world, even in conversations about faith, we can talk philosophy of ministry or ways that churches set up themselves and how to do church and what a church should be like or act like. Um, but to quote the author Randy Alcorn, if we get it wrong about Jesus, it doesn't matter what else we get right. And it's possible to miss Jesus. It's possible for Christians to miss Jesus. That's a big miss. Because as you know, Jesus can be used in all sorts of ways. And I'll just give a few of these, uh, to maybe to, to paint my point. I, I stand on the stage here, and uh, what does that say on the sign? Jesus saves. Uh, ironically, these signs became famous uh, with the Mars Hill churches over the last decade and a half. And we are in Harbor Church, which is uh, an offshoot plant of the remnant of Mars Hill Olympia. But again, it's, uh, it's not lost on me that that sign, Jesus saves, means something to some people. And others who experienced even Mars Hill Church in a particular way see that sign and they're trying to figure out what Jesus are you talking about? Next slide. I think I've shown this picture before, right? Jesus saves. Again, as a, actually, this picture was taken in Portland, Oregon, like I think 1912, 1915, sometime around then. Jesus saves as you have Klansmen wearing their robes. Which Jesus are you talking about? Or, again, January 6th at the Capitol, Jesus saves. What Jesus are we talking about? What does that mean? How do you experience him? Or, again, I'll put this up as a representation of what some have done then because they've experienced the pain and heartache of the church waving a banner that says Jesus saves. Others then have said, well then, I'm going to deconstruct it all and put Jesus as one of many. 
right? Religious symbols, religious teachers, many, there's many different ways to know God, and Jesus may be one of them. So we can go back to the Bible and back to Scripture. And I think it's not overstatement to say, when we say, I want you to know God, I want you to know Jesus. Like, I want you to have intimacy with God. That's eternal life. Like, what does that mean? Which God? Which Jesus? What is, what is he all about? So I want to read from John chapter 13 tonight. As we begin the series and kind of begin to move through the upper room discourse, I want you to hear the words. I want you to picture the scene. I want you to understand what's going on as we get into the heart of this passage and the heart of this text. John chapter 13, Jesus is in Jerusalem. John chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room. He's with his 12 disciples, and it's time for them to celebrate the Passover, the Passover being one of the big Jewish holy days. And this is what begins to go down in the upper room. John chapter 13, verse 1. Here we find, I believe, to be the multidimensional beauty of Jesus. Not a caricature, not a slogan, but this is the beautiful Christ who displays what God is like. Let me read this, John 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Big miss. Big miss would be to get Jesus wrong. So don't miss this as we get to see this glimpse as John tells the story and paints the picture and describes the scene. Don't miss the height of Jesus' authority here. Again, being candid, and I'm a bit of a Bible nerd, but I find John 13 through 17, in this chapter particularly, 
I find it rich, and I find it compelling, and I love the scene that's painted here. There are just so many nuggets and so many gems tucked away in this passage here in John 13. Again, John is one of Jesus' disciples, and he is present for the meal. The one who's authoring this, he was there that night in the room, and he gives us his account. Now, his account, in some ways, is to tell us what happened Um, what moments took place in the room, but John gives us more than just like the video camera detail of the event. He gives us some other information and he paints the picture and he gives us some inside information. Listen to this description of Jesus. Again, verse 1, he talks about the fact that it was the Feast of Passover. Verse 2, he tells us that something was going to go down with Judas and the betrayal, but that hadn't happened yet. And then he gets into the details of what happened in the room. And there's these two statements, verse 1 and verse 3. John tells us, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and in verse 3 he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And I think it's an important question to ask here, what did Jesus know in this moment? And John tells us that Jesus knew several things. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew he had spent time with the Father, and he knew that his hour had come, and in in the book of John, his hour refers to the time of his death. Jesus knew that it was about time to die. Jesus also knew, again, this has been mentioned a few times in communion by Carla and by David, Jesus knew his identity. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew whose he was. He knew that he had come from the Father. He knew that he was about ready to go back to the Father. And he knew that he had authority, as John tells us, that the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. So here we have Jesus stepping into this room and he's stepping into the scene. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Jesus? The Father had revealed to him that he was about ready to die and that also he knew who he was, where he came from. He knew whose he was and he was going back to the Father. He knew that the Father had entrusted him with authority. No small thing here. And here's why I'm taking the time to tease this out. It's because some in their quest to explain Jesus paint him only as an itinerant preacher or a Jewish rabbi or a miracle worker or a homeless sage. And some of those things are true about Jesus. And while those descriptors, some of them may ring true, we can't miss this about Jesus. If we want to understand Jesus, we must understand his authority John tells us in his own way here that Jesus is the embodied Son of God. That Jesus is the eternal Word made flesh. To use theological ideas, that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Or to use Paul's words in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
So as Jesus is in the room that night, yes, he is fully man. And we're going to see the beauty of his humanity on display. But also John reminds us that this Jesus is not just some random Hebrew guy who showed up on the scene and eventually ended up at the wrong time in the wrong place, kind of at the wrong end of power by the Roman authority who put him to death. Jesus knows his time and he knows his identity and he knows that he has come from the Father, and he knows that he's going back to the Father, and he knows that all things are in his hands. I just want to remind us that Jesus has serious authority, outrageous authority, all things in his hand. Jesus is living in control. Again, uh, he's, he has the height of authority. And again, um, you read the story of wh- how this plays out. There's, there's tension in this. But John reminds us that Jesus has authority. To borrow Old Testament language, he has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that nothing is too difficult for him, that he is the Ancient of Days, that he is the Lion of Judah, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is the beginning and the end, he is the first and the last, and nothing catches him off guard, and nothing surprises him, and he accomplishes his will. It's a reminder, if you want to know God and have intimacy with God, don't miss the authority of Jesus. Look up and see the height of it. He is majestic. He is the height of authority given by the Father. If you bang the authority drum, it doesn't get any louder. So may we never minimize Jesus or condescend Jesus, or ignore Jesus, or simply put him as a good teacher among all the philosophies of the world. He is actually one who is to be listened to and heeded and obeyed and honored and given his due. And and to, to miss out on the height of the authority of Jesus is to miss out on who God is in the flesh. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's, I, I, I get that. I know that. Some of you are very comfortable with the authority of Jesus. But check this out. This is where the story gets bonkers. This is where the, it's nutso. What happens next? Don't miss the authority of Jesus, but also don't, don't miss the height of his authority, but don't miss the depth of Jesus' audacity. Because as John tells the story, what happens next? What's the next move? John tells us that Jesus knows who he is. He knows his hour has come. He knows that he's come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. The Father's given all things into his hands. What's the next move? Jesus washes feet. you got to be kidding me. If you gave me all authority, and if I knew who I was, The next move is not feet washing. Jesus, knowing who he is, Jesus, knowing whose he is, Jesus, having all authority with all things from the Father into his hands, he washes feet, full stop. He washes feet. It's like record scratch. What? Jesus. 
in his authority, strips off his clothes, and he picks up a towel, and he washes their feet. I'm not making this up. I'm going to read it again just so you know that I'm making this up. Verse 3. Again, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus intentionally, purposefully, deliberately chooses menial service over meaningful status. And he washes their feet. And I could go into some sort of cultural background to describe the importance of foot washing in that day as they wore sandals and dirt roads. And it was customary in the house that you walked into that they would have a servant of the house wash your feet. I don't even think I need to give it all the cultural background for you to understand like, wow, that's significant. Like even with a few thousand years between us and a cultural divide between us, I think we get the idea of just how lowly that is the disciples enter the room that night to celebrate this Passover feast, one of the great celebrations of their faith tradition, and none of them felt like it was their job to wash the other people's feet. There was no servant there to wash their feet, so they're like, well, I ain't washing your feet. I'm going to have dirty feet while I eat. And then here's Jesus stripping off his clothes, getting down on his hands and knees, and reaching into the dirt, into the disgustingness, and he washes their feet. Like, who is this? Who is this? This is the high, mighty, glorious, authoritative one of heaven and earth. And here's what he does with his power. Here's what he does with his authority. He washes feet. He moves intimately into the place of neglect, the place of unmentionable shame. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss the height of his authority, but don't miss the depth of his audacity. Jesus is the one who uses power to serve. Our world does not function like this. Jesus uses privilege to serve and bless and to take it upon himself to be inconvenienced even to the point of getting down into the mess of feet. And I'll be honest, feet are nasty. Jesus. He strips down. Jesus. He, he gets hands on with it. Jesus, there's no place he won't go. Jesus, there's no task he won't do. Jesus, there's nothing that he's above. Because Jesus knows this, this is a kingdom truth, that the ultimate expression of power and authority is to be willing to use it in love for the sake of the least. Don't miss that. I think the American church is missing this right now. We're in danger of missing this right now that the ultimate expression of power and authority is to be willing to use our power and privilege and authority for the sake of the least in love. Power and privilege takes the towel and moves into the dirtiest place. Man, Jesus, that's audacious. <laughs> but the mere act of washing feet isn't what's most audacious to me. Like, I can kind of get my head around that. I can get my head around serving someone that I love. 
I can actually kind of understand the practice of washing the feet of those that you love. Because again, I'm not saying this at all to brag about myself, but I'm a dad. I have three kids. I, I have. I've had my moments, but I also have had my, I've had my bad moments where I've lost it, been selfish. But I, I've also had my moments where I love my kids, and so I do stuff for them. And I've changed my fare of stanky diapers. I've wiped my fair share of rear ends. In fact, Callie and I were reminiscing the other day. Like, remember that time? It was just like an ultimate blowout, and we literally carry one of our kids. Like, I got the hands, you get the feet, we're just carrying you up to the bathtub. It's that bad. I've been vomited on multiple times. I've cleaned up my fair share of that too. One child doing that in their bed and then stumbling down to our bedroom and wiping it down the hallway. It's 2 a.m. and it's time to clean up the mess. I've cleaned out the fridge with moldy Tupperware. Whew, heaven help me. Again, that's not to pat myself on the back, but I imagine many of you too. You've had your moments where you're like, you know what? I love you. It's my job. I'll serve you. It's one thing to wash others' feet in service and sacrifice when you love them and they treat you well. But I want you to notice what's happening in John 13. Whose feet does he wash? Yes, Jesus does wash Matthew's feet. And he does wash Thaddeus' feet. But who else is in the room that day? Two other people in particular. Peter? Peter's in the room. Peter gets his feet washed. What does Peter go on to do that very night? Deny Jesus. Three times. Who else is in the room? Judas. Again, John told us that that's about ready to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Judas is in the room. Jesus knows that this is about to happen. And Jesus washes Judas' feet too. Jesus knows about the, the great act of betrayal and he washes his feet anyway. Like, man, that's me, like I'm grabbing Judas's toe and like breaking it or something like that. If I may, Jesus engages in enemy foot washing to the one who wounds him, to the one who hurts him, to the one who breaks his heart, to the one who betrays friendship. That is audacious. Jesus, in the height of authority, reaches to the depth of audacity and he scrubs the feet of the one who would cause him heartache. Have you heard the good news of the gospel is that Jesus washes enemy feet and I've got enemy feet and I've been the enemy that Jesus has washed in his love. I've been the one who's betrayed him and he still offers me love and grace forgiveness <laughs> don't miss Jesus don't miss the height of his authority don't miss the depth of his audacity and also don't miss the length of his affection and all of this kind of flows together and ties together there's this little phrase here in John 13 that I love I've read it a few times we're going to read it again verse 1 
before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Here it is. He loved them to the end. Like what, what is God like? Who is this Jesus? An aspect of his love is that he loves to the end. He loves to the end. This is the length of Jesus' affection. Right? He has love. He is love. He embodies love. How long will Jesus love you? How far will he go to engage you? And this is his promise. is to the end. Even among your blunders, he will love you to the end. Especially among your mistakes, Jesus will love you to the end. Again, he has the height of authority. He has the depth of audacity. But man, don't miss this about Jesus. He has long, long, long love. One might say everlasting love. When my kids were little, we used to read them the Jesus Storybook Bible at night. And there's this phrase from the Jesus Storybook Bible... I think it's actually in like one of the earlier stories. But the refrain goes, you see no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it's a mouthful to say, but I love the sentiment. This is John's way of saying that Jesus loves to the end. He doesn't give up halfway. Who is this Jesus? Who is this God? Again, if the invitation is eternal life, John 17, and eternal life is this, is that you would know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. For a variety of reasons, we don't know God like that. The Jesus who has the height of authority. The Jesus who steps down and washes feet of those that would hurt him. Jesus who loves to the end. To me, this is beautiful. It's provocative. And it's possible for us to miss Jesus. Even in this story, it's possible to miss Jesus. Two ways, and then I'll be done. Two ways that they miss Jesus. How is it possible to miss Jesus? First way, Peter shows us, it's possible to miss Jesus when we don't let him watch us. Right? Do you see that interaction in verse 6? Jesus, again, takes off his outer garments and he pours water into a basin and he takes up the towel and he comes and he sets up to wash the disciples' feet. And when he gets to Peter, he gets to Simon Peter, Jesus runs into a barrier. Verse 6, came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Which sounds so humble and pious and good. It's like, no, 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 Jesus, no. You don't have to wash my feet. Again, I get who you are. You're master and Lord. You don't wash my feet. 
Right? You're higher than that. You're better than that. This is, that's servant kind of work. You shouldn't be touching my feet, Jesus. Jesus replies with a hard-hitting truth when he says, if I don't wash you, then you have no share with me, no part with me. And we're brought back down to earth with this pride-splitting truth. You and I and every person must let Jesus wash us. Because if we don't, then we miss out. And again, being real candid with you, letting someone wash your feet is hard. You ever had someone offer to wash your feet before? We should do that in youth group. Wash feet. (laughs) That's so awkward, especially with teenagers. Washing feet. But it's really humble to let someone wash your feet because you're like, I touch my like I haven't prepared my feet yet. I need to clip my toenails first. I need to scrub them first. They stink. It's humbling to let someone touch your feet, let alone wash your feet. It's the place where you're not proud of, the place that maybe you are sensitive about. And it's really hard, honestly, for some people to let Jesus wash them. But again, Jesus reminds us, like this is the only way in, <laughs> is that I wash you. And I would say it's very easy for pr- proud people, and I would say it's really easy for churched people, people with a lot of church experience, to miss Jesus because we're so busy cleaning ourselves and we refuse to let him wash us. And we think that we need to come to him cleaned up and so we keep him away. There's a line um, from Flannery O'Connor. I think Tim Keller references it, but we can go to the next slide. He says, Flannery O'Connor, who wrote about one of her characters, Hazel Motis, said that he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If you're avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, model, and helper, but you're avoiding him as savior. You're trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You're trying to save yourself by following Jesus. There's one way you can avoid Jesus is to be like, I'm just going to be so good that he doesn't have to forgive me. I'm going to be so put together that he doesn't have to wash me. I'm going to get myself all gussied up enough that he will love me, and that's not the way it works. We need the washing, cleansing, forgiveness of God. And for many, that's really good news. You're like, oh, I need that. Others who are a little bit more put together were like, I don't know if I need that. We need that. We need that. Maybe not be like Peter and be like, no, Lord, don't wash me. I got this. Are we avoiding Jesus being so good that we don't need him anymore? May we let Jesus wash our feet, confess, speak the truth, expose the dirtiness that's there. Because his love is that good and that kind and that great that he meets you where you are and loves you still and draws you deeper to himself. So some miss Jesus because we don't let him wash us. And then also some of us miss Jesus because we don't do what he's told us to do. And that may sound like a weird juxtaposition, 
But that's the next staggering part of this passage. Right? The story goes, they're, having, they're sitting down to have Passover meal. Jesus kind of takes off his clothes, puts on the towel, washes their feet. Peter objects. Jesus corrects him. So then Peter's like, no, 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 if that's the case, give me a bath, head to toe, wash all of me. But then in verse 12, Jesus isn't done yet. And here's how this section ends. So he, when he washed their feet, he, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place right back at the table. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? <laughs> that's a tricky question. Like when Jesus says, do you understand what I've done? Uh, yes, no, I don't, I don't know. I think so. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And often in my life, I've become a master at knowing the things of Jesus. And I just don't do them. Jesus says, let me wash you. <laughs> Look, this is who I am. This is my authority. This is the depth of how I love you. I'll wash you. I'll cleanse you. I'll love you to the end. And as I love you then, here's what it means for you to be my disciple. Go and do likewise. So we can miss Jesus by not letting him wash our feet, but also after he washes our feet, we can be like, okay, that's good. When's heaven? Get me out of here. Right? Escape me. Exit, uh, uh, eject button. Jesus says, no, here's the deal. Here's what I want. This is eternal life, that you would know me. And a part of knowing me is that what I have now done for you. Master and Lord, now I've given you an example, and if you know these things, the blessing is found in your obedience to do them. And I've given you an example, so go wash other people's feet. Now again, there's some debates. What, what does that mean? Should we be washing feet every time we gather as a church? I won't go into the nuance of that argument, but maybe. But at the very least... It's to follow the example and the pattern of power and authority that is divested in serving others, loving others, serving others. The blessing is found in using our God-given authority and our God-given power and our God-given privilege, not to say, look what I have, but to be divested and serve. This is the God that I want us to know. And it would be a church and a people that does what Jesus says. That is part of the Great Commission when he says, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the triune name and teaching them to observe, teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. Obedience is part of this thing too. That it makes its way into our lives. That we, we look different, live different. Our character is different. Our life is different. 
to know the God of all authority. He's the one who uses his authority to step into the unsightly places of the world, including my life. He's the God who washes the feet of his enemies. He's the God who loves to the very end. May we not avoid him or ignore him, but may he wash us into a life that follows him and obeys him and loves like him and serves like him. And then when we fail, he washes us again and recommissions us to go back out and love and serve and bless again. We're a community of disciples being formed to the image of Jesus for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I am amazed at you. I've been around the church a long time and coming again to this passage just reminds me of your brilliance. It reminds me of your greatness. Because there is no one else in our world that does authority like that or power like that or privilege like that. You are so amazing, Jesus. Thank you for loving to the end. Thank you for loving us to the end. Thank you for washing the feet of those that betray you. May we grow in what it means to know you and follow you and experience life that is true life, not defined by the way of the world, but Jesus defined by you. So God, I pray, uh, I, I pray for those that are hearing this tonight, myself included. May they sense your invitation. Lord Jesus, may we not miss you in our assumptions, our presumption. May we come closer to know who you are. And God, I pray for those that may be listening tonight that have not yet come to step across that line of faith to say, I believe. Jesus, would tonight even be a night where you would invite them close to you by faith. So Lord, it's our privilege tonight again to, to remember it's our privilege again, as we do each week, to celebrate the table, to sing. And would you continue to meet us and draw us close to your heart tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.